Good morning, Southview. How are we? Welcome. Glad you are here today. It is rainy, but we're glad that you're here. Real quick, can we also, uh, there, we got to do it loud so they can hear us. Can we give a big thank you to all the guys in the parking lot and everyone at our side doors for doing such a great job breaking out the umbrellas this morning, helping people get in. We're so glad that you're here today worshiping. If you're new with us, welcome. My name is Brad. I'm the pastor here at Southview. We're so glad to have you with us. If you are a guest with us today, or if you're watching along online or in our mask room, wherever you are, Welcome, thank you so much for being here today. If you're a guest with us, we'd love to connect with you. The best and easiest way you can do that is to grab your cell phone and text the word CONNECT to the number on the screen, 910-424-1298. Just text CONNECT there. That way we'll know who you are and how we can minister to you in the best way possible. But I have just a handful of announcements I want to throw your way. One... Our ladies breakfast yesterday, they had a great turnout, went amazing. So for the ladies that were able to be a part of that, glad you were able to, to do that. For the guys that helped serve, thank you all so much. It was a wonderful, wonderful day. Uh, got a lot of uh, gifts for the uh, Pregnancy Resource Center and so, so many great things. We're so excited about that. So now as we're transitioning though now into holiday time got a couple of announcements related to that first our thanksgiving baskets are due today if you grab the bag to fill it in for uh, a thanksgiving basket to give away that's going to be due today so if you can just bring those in or if you can just bring it by the office this week if you still have one we'd really appreciate that also it is operation christmas child christmas box time so if you're filling those out we encourage you to do that grab a couple boxes um uh, fill those up with uh, all the goodies that are needed and then bring those back here. You can just honestly start putting them right here on the front. Uh, and then we'll collect all those and get those turned in where they need to be. We would greatly appreciate that. Also, we have Halloween coming up. And today, after the 11 o'clock service, we're going to have a quick meeting for anyone interested in using their home as a Halloween outreach uh, on Halloween this year. So after the 11 o'clock service in the FLC, you can jump in there. To uh, hear more about that and how you could be a part of that. Uh, during all of this uh, time here uh, in COVID, things are obviously still a little different for us. Um, we're not passing an offering plate uh, yet. We've got some buckets on the sides. You can drop your offering in your way in or out. Or you can uh, get on your phone again and give online. Go into southviewbc.com. You can give that way. Whatever is best and easiest for you, we're also continuing extra cleaning on all of those measures uh, as we're navigating this time just like everybody else. But we're so glad that you're here today worshiping with us. I, I want to read a scripture to you that we're going to see later in today, but I want to kind of set the stage for us. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 24. Listen to what it says. He himself, that's Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Look again at that verse 24. Look at the way it describes Christianity, the way it describes salvation. What does it say? It says that Jesus is the one that bore our sins. Jesus is the one who went to the tree, hung on the tree at the cross for our sin. The doctrinal term there is called substitutionary atonement. The idea that someone stood in your place as a substitute for your sins. And it says, by his wounds you've been healed. This is a quote from Isaiah 53. I want us to focus our minds just for a few moments before we jump in and worship together on the healing of Jesus Christ on the cross. By his wounds you are healed. And when we say the word healing, a lot of times we think physical, which is... Amen, we pray for that, and, and by God's grace, he allows us to see that. We, we, we're so thankful there. But, but in this verse, it's clearly talking in terms of your sin, being healed from your sin. Think of the healing of Jesus as bigger than just physical. He heals you from your sin. He heals you spiritually. He heals you emotionally. He heals you mentally. In fact, the word salvation means to be made whole, made right, made complete. This is... Christ does. I want to encourage you just to bow your heads just for a moment and let's just meditate just for a minute on the healing of Jesus Christ. And as we come to Him for salvation, He heals us from our sin. He takes away the pain, the scars, the wounds from your past. He says, That's no longer who you are, that's no longer what defines you. I make you new. Have you experienced the full, complete, total healing power of salvation in Jesus Christ? You are whole. So often we allow emotions and, and thoughts to, to drive us. By his wounds, you've been healed from those. You don't have to walk in captivity to those anymore. You have been healed. So as we worship this morning, I want us to worship our great Savior, who we don't just, we don't just stand today and sing songs. We, we worship our great, amazing Savior, Jesus Christ, who heals us from our sin and all the pain that our sin brings into our life. He heals us. He heals you. He doesn't just forgive you of your sin. He heals you from your sin. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for healing me from my sin. Thank you for making me whole. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this in me. And I thank you, Jesus, for doing this in everyone else here who has placed faith in you, Jesus. And I pray for those here in the room that have not placed faith in you, Jesus. Today, they'll be healed from their sin. Bring healing, Jesus, in your name today. We love you, Lord. Thank you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Let's stand and sing together. Ooh, ooh, I can feel the clouds rolling. I can see the winds, they try to shake me. And I would not be moved. My feet are on the rock. Ooh, I can feel the waters rise 
praise God that he gave us a way back to him through Jesus Christ. As we've already heard in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Aren't you glad that God sent his son for us that we can live free? Let's continue to sing.
seat if you will and grab your Bible if you have one. First Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be. First Peter chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible there should be one on the back of the pew in front of you. You're welcome to grab that. First Peter chapter 2 you're going to find it in that Bible on page 1114. You're welcome to join along with us. So I don't know if you've heard this yet or not but we have an election in 23 days. You may want to turn on the news. I think it's going to be a big deal. I don't know if you've heard about that. You may hear something soon. In God's providence, as we go through the book of 1 Peter, we land today in 1 Peter chapter 2, which is going to address a Christian's response to several things, one of them being the government. And I want to go ahead and, from the jump, warn you. The way the Bible tells us as believers to respond to our government and the way the world tells us to respond to our government are two very different things. Okay? They're, they're very, very, very different. And so it might sting a little. All right? 
Uh, but it's a good thing. It's, it's, it's the Lord's word to us. So, as we dive into this, we're going to see three specific things. A, a new section of scripture starts in 1 Peter, uh, the section of 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to talk about how we as followers of Christ are to deal with and, and walk through di- areas and places in life that could cause conflict and difficulty. Specifically, it's going to address three things. One, how do we as followers of Christ deal with ungodly government? Two, how do we as followers of Christ deal with unjust treatment? What happens if people around us with authority over us treat us unjustly? And three, how do we as followers of Christ deal with imperfect spouses? All right? So that's kind of the flow uh, for the next part of this scripture. What we're going to talk about today is how we as Christians deal with ungodly government and unjust treatment. And then next week we're going to tackle imperfect spouses. When I say tackle, I don't mean physically tackle, okay? Like you're not going to be able, right right now, I know there's a lady in the room going, if we come back next week, I get to hit him? Like, seriously? Some lady's going to show up with a helmet strapped on thinking she gets to get a 20-yard sprint and spear tackle her husband. That's not, we're going to talk about imperfect spouses. But let's start first in verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse 11 kind of gives us an on-ramp into these three sections. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Again, we've been talking about that for weeks. So we're, we're exiles. We're sojourners. It's, it's not our home. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what we want to set the stage for real quick is this. Verses 11 and 12 lay out a very powerful truth. There's an internal war and there's an external war. Right? Look at verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. All right? Quick honesty pop quiz. Does it ever feel like the temptations to sin are like a war raging in your heart? I'll raise my hand for all the other liars. You may want to think about that this week. Yes is the answer. And he tells us here to wage war, to fight against these passions passions that that will wage war in our souls. So that we can enter into the external conflict when people around us, the sinful, ungodly world, when they attack us, now we've got a leg to stand on because we've successfully seen the battle inside of us won. So very quickly, how do we win the battle on the inside? We've been talking about that for several weeks. I encourage you to go back and grab those podcasts. You can listen through those. But the big idea is this. Jesus Christ makes you new. Jesus Christ changes you. We just sang it. Jesus paid it all. The idea is this, right? 
I am convinced that thy power and thine alone can change a leopard's spots and melt a heart of stone. We understand that there's no person, no situation, no circumstance, no entrenched sin pattern in your life that cannot be radically, miraculously, totally changed by Jesus. We saw already 1 Peter 2, 24, Jesus heals us from our sin. So step one is you got to be healed from your sin and then walk in the new life that he has given you. And as you do that, verse 12 will then be true of you. You can keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The idea is you've been so radically changed on the inside that you can't help but live changed on the outside. And when people try to accuse you of evil, everyone else looks around you and says, you mean that guy? That guy doesn't look evil to me. Right, that's the point. Christianity is lived inside out. What's messed so much of us up is that we've tried to live Christianity outside in. You've tried to change your life and have that somehow make you close to God. And the Lord says, no, that's not the way this thing works. You come to me by faith in Jesus and then I'll change the outside. Right, it's inside out is how the faith is lived. And when we live inside out, we're going to be able to step into three potentially difficult spheres of life and walk in authority and power and grace. Ungodly governments, unjust treatment, and imperfect spouses. So let's, let's look at ungodly government, all right? Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So we're going to break this passage down and look at three questions, all right? What are we called to do, why do we do it, and how do we do it, all right? What, why, how? You can follow along on the back of your bulletin if you have that, or you can just kind of jot some notes as we go. What, why, how with ungodly government. First is the what. What are we called to do? We are called, very simply, to submit. Submit to them for the Lord's sake, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to, what's that word? I know it's 9.30 and it's raining outside, but you got to, every, all, total, complete, all, every human institution, including the emperor, the governors that he would send, everybody. We are to submit for the Lord's sake. We do not submit because they're good. We submit because God is good. That is extremely important. We submit not because they're right. We submit because God is right. It has everything to do with your relationship to God and very little to do with your relationship to them. It is always totally, completely about you and God. Do you love God? Do you trust God? Do you walk by faith in God to do what he's told you to do? What did he tell you to do? Submit to them. Submit to them. So, I live in 2020, just like you. I walk around with Christians in 2020, just like you, so I know the response. The response is this. Do you know who's running for president? 
have you seen? Whatever side you're on, I know Christians who are convinced one side is the devil and convinced the other side is the devil. I've seen Christians who are convinced this side is the one God wants to win, and I know Christians who think this side is the one who God wants to win. Everyone is saying, I'll submit as long as my guy wins. But if my guy doesn't win, there is no way God really expects for me. Do you know how evil they are? Do you know what they believe? Do you know what they're going to do? God would never, ever, ever expect that from us. Oh, really? He tells these Christians to submit to the emperor. Do you know who the emperor is here? A man by the name of Nero. Let's do a little quick history lesson. Nero was a special kind of crazy. Nero kicked his pregnant wife to death, then felt bad about it. So he walked through the market, found a young boy who favored his wife, had him castrated, and made him live in his house the rest of his life, wearing his dead wife's clothes and being called by his dead wife's name. Crazy. Nero is the one who famously started throwing Christians to the lions. Nero would take Christians, tie horses to each limb, and send them going in opposite directions, having their arms and legs ripped from their torso. Nero would take Christians, tie them to a pole, put them in his garden, and light them on fire while they were alive to mock them saying that they were the light of the world and to light his garden as he goes for his evening stroll. Walking through his garden as the screams of burning Christians filled his ears. You want to be the light of the world? Light my garden. That's the guy he's talking about. Submit to even him. Remember, we must disavow ourselves of this goofy, ridiculous, westernized Christianity. When Jesus called you, he bids a man to come and die. That means you submit to God first and everyone and everything else he tells you to. You submit. I told you it was going to sting. Okay, well, is there any place for civil disobedience? Yes, I believe so. Most biblical scholars say the line falls down on if the government commands you to do something God forbids or forbids you to do something that God commands, you have a biblical responsibility at that point to stand in opposition. You see this several times in the book of Daniel. When Daniel and his boys go in to Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's court, and they're given the food, right? And so we know the story, right? The whole Daniel fast thing, right? He says, no, 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 I don't want to eat that. Let me eat this instead. That's not like your five-year-old refusing to eat the broccoli you made. What's happening there is they're asking him to take part in a false communion to a god called Marduk. This is bigger than just, I don't want to eat what you're fixing. Daniel and his guys are going, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to trust and stay true to our God. We refuse to do what you're telling us to do. Later on, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? 
bow down to this golden image and say, no, we can't do that. Throw into the fiery furnace. A few chapters later, Daniel's told, you're not allowed to pray to your God. He says, sorry, I can't do that. Not only does he pray, he goes and finds a window, opens it up and yells so everybody can hear him. If the government commands you to do something, like worshiping a false god, you say no. If the government forbids you to do something that God tells you to do, like pray, you say no. We see this happening today. Churches in California and in Washington, D.C. are being told you're not allowed to gather and worship. And they are six months into this thing at this point. And so at this point, they're saying, we're going to have to go no on that one. We're going to humbly, respectfully disobey you. Because at this point, you're commanding us to do something, forbidding us to do something that God has commanded us to do. But the mandate, the the principle that God lays on us, verse 13, submit, be subject for the Lord's sake, because I love him and I trust him and I worship him, I will do what he tells me to do and I will trust him. It's not that I trust the government. If you trust the government, we need to have some talks this week. It's not that we trust them, we trust him. So we submit for the Lord's sake. Why do we do this? Verse 15. For this is the will of God. First reason is this, it's God's will. I don't know what God's will is on November 3rd. I don't know. He has not filled me in on that yet. What I do know is this, it is absolutely his will that I submit myself to whoever he puts in office. That is absolutely his will for me. Why? He wants to accomplish something in it. Verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The word put to silence means literally to muzzle, like you're muzzling an ox or a dog. You put this muzzle on, a, on, a, on an animal so that it can't bark, can't, can't make noise. You put to silence Who? Ignorant, foolish people. Yes or no? Right now, today, on both sides of the aisle, people are fools. Absolute, ignorant fools. And for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, the way we respond to ignorant fools is not to out-argue them. I wish I had a mute button on my phone so I can mute all the Christians on social media. That is not the way we win the day. That is not the way we show ourselves as holy. How do we do this? By submitting ourselves, even in situations that are difficult and harsh, we submit ourselves there so that we, through that means... Muzzle up the ignorant and foolish. We do not win the day by being the loudest. We do not win the day by being the snarkiest on social media. Memes don't win. Submission to Christ does. Why would we do something so stupid as this? Because God told us to, and he supernaturally is going to work through this. Think about all the ways God won battles that were dumb. we got a lot of military people in here. We have people that go into the military college, very high ranking in service. 
I got an idea. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to a fortified city. And without any weapons, just with your trumpets, get the band, right? Because if there's anyone that's a great fighter, it's a guitarist. Right? So get, get that. And I want you to walk around the wall seven times. Have you ever watched a, a movie from the, from the Middle Ages from the dark, where, where there are storming castles? What do they do from the top of the walls? Throw stuff down on you. Right? Oh, look, there's a guy. Yeah, he's gone now. I want you to just walk around the wall seven times. Then what's going to happen? Then you're going to yell. Then what? I'm going to make it all fall down. That doesn't make any sense. Well, what happened? The walls came crumbling down. They won the battle. God delights in winning the battles in ways the world looks at and is confounded with. If you're using the same weapon as them, put it down. You're grabbing the wrong weapon. If you sound like them, you're doing it wrong. How do we fight this war? By trusting God, walking in submission to Him, and submission to whoever else He tells us to. And by doing this, we're going to muzzle the ignorant fools. How awesome is that? We do it that way, why? Because only God gets that glory. Only God can be the hero then. We do this because it is a supernatural tool given by God to silence the foolish. On both sides of the aisle. How do we do it? We do it. You can pick this up in verse 17 or verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. One, we live in the freedom of Christ. I love verse 16. What it says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as people who are free. The reason that people yell and scream and fight and bicker and post and tweet and demean and demonize their political opponents is because they believe the only way they have true freedom is through political victory. You fight and yell and scream when you feel like your life depends on it. How many times have you heard your life depends on this election? Live as people who are free. And the great truth is this. The United States of America does not give me my ultimate freedom. Jesus does. The Constitution of of the United States does not give me my ultimate freedom. Jesus does. So I live as someone who's free because he has made me free. I don't have to get caught up in all of the junk and chaos and arguing and bitterness because I don't think winning that is what's going to make me free. Jesus has already done that. I live as someone who's free. Now, living as people who are free, free in Christ, now we also have the freedom to engage in the process. 
I can jump in and be a part of the process without feeling like everything in my existence depends on it, right? I'm actually free to give it my, way, to give it my best. Not depending on that for my existence, that for my identity, that for my hope. I get all of that from Jesus. So now you know what I get to do? I get to be a part of the political process, and I encourage you to do the same thing. Get educated and vote. Do that. 50% of eligible adults do not vote in presidential elections. 50%. The numbers aren't any better inside the church. Being free in Christ and Christ alone doesn't mean that we step out of the process. It means we're finally freed up to step in the process but not be crazy people. See the difference? You get to actually be the adult in the room. You get to actually be someone filled with the Holy Spirit's fruit of self-control. You get to step in and be a part of the process. I think we have people in this room that need to run for office. See yourself as a missionary in government service. Step in there for God's glory in the name of Jesus. And you get to do it and do it well because you're not depending on that to get you freedom. Jesus has already done that for you. So now you just get to step in with a whole, complete, full, healed-up heart and just seek to glorify God. Live in the freedom of Christ. Uh, Second, honor everyone, verse 17. Honor everyone. What he's talking about here is there are people that were living around them that were doing really ungodly, wicked things. They were pagan, idolatrous worshipers. And they were doing things that the people of God could not condone, could not accept, could not endorse. They had to stand at odds and say, no, no, I I disagree with that. I think that is wrong. But even in the midst of that, they were called to honor everyone. Christians are people who honor everyone. Honor them. Even if you can't endorse or condone what they are doing, you honor them because they were created in the image of God just like you. Maybe they're held captive to sin. Maybe they haven't experienced verse 16 and been set free in Christ. Then that's what we want to pray for. But we honor them as people equally made in the image of God. Honor everyone. Do you honor the people that disagree with you? Do you honor them? Or do you mock them? Do you belittle them? Do you curse them? Honor everyone. Again, to go back to what I was saying, the whole point of 1 Peter is that we come at things drastically different than the rest of the world. Drastically different than everyone around us. We look, act, talk, sound way different than them. This is who we're called to be. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. You'll say in verse 17. Love the brotherhood. John 17, Jesus says that the greatest apologetic tool in the world, the greatest tool for evangelism on earth are Christians loving other Christians. Love the brotherhood. Love one another, care for one another, serve one another, bless one another, love the brotherhood. As we do that, the world looks at that love and says there's something different about them. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. 
Jesus would say, why do you fear the one who can destroy the body but not destroy the soul? Fear instead the one who can destroy both the body and the soul. Remember, the beginning of wisdom starts with the fear of God. We don't honor our government authority because we're afraid of them. We honor them because we fear God, which is a little more significant. Fear God, and last, honor the emperor. That word honor is really significant because it describes not just external action, but an internal feeling and emotion of the heart. Like you genuinely in your heart respect them. And again, think about the man who he's talking about to them. A man who is actively seeking to see them destroyed. He is, he is wanting to exterminate them like bugs from the planet. He says, honor the emperor. Genuinely in your heart, respect him. How in the world do we do that? I think a couple of things. One, pray. I cannot encourage you more highly to pray for our governing leaders. Number one, we're just commanded to do it, 1 Timothy chapter 2. But what also, here, here's the reason why. One, obviously God moves in the prayers of his people and moves the hearts of those in authority through the prayers of his people. But what also prayer does is it changes your heart. I've never been able to pray for someone over an extended period of time and still dislike them. I've never been able to do that. Now, maybe you are. You're like, I mean, the force is strong with you. But for me, as I put someone on my prayer list and I'm just regularly praying for them, praying for them, praying for them, my heart shifts towards them. I think one of the reasons that we're called to pray for, ours, for those in our governing authority is because as we genuinely pray for them as people, not that they would, would enact legislation or ideas that we believe they should, but we pray for them as people, our heart turns towards them. Honor them. Obey the laws, pay your taxes, all those sorts of things. But I think the greatest practical step we could look at is do you genuinely pray for them? Let's start there. And as we do that, we're going to see again our heart shift and our heart change so that we, we think about them, we feel about them differently than we did previously. We honor them. He then switches to the next area. This unjust treatment. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, same thing as previous. We want to do the, the what, why, and the how. So whenever we come across sections of Scripture that deal with the idea of slavery, we get nervous. How, how are we supposed to deal with this? How are we supposed to address this? What's this supposed to look like? So let me give you a couple of hooks to hang this on, okay? Um, first is this. When the Bible mentions slavery, and it does so in, in uh, a couple of times in the New Testament, it's, slavery used during the first century was significantly different than slavery that we experience here in the United States. Slavery here in the United States was obviously race-based. Not true for slavery in first century that was being dealt with here. We'll talk about that in just a second. Anytime, for sure, there have been wicked, horrible people who have taken scriptures like this and twisted them to try in some way support uh, this race-based slavery that we walk through as a nation and everyone who did that was a horrible horrible man who i'm pretty sure went to hell any form of racism is wicked and racists go to hell it's not your culture it's not just the way you were raised the bible is abundantly clear on this that the one mark change that happens to you at salvation is love and is there anything more unloving than than and just hating someone because of the color of their skin or what they were born or how they were born or their religion or anything like that. It, it's wicked. And if you don't repent of that, you go to hell. So, so that's one. right? It, we want to make that abundantly clear that this is the standard of the scriptures. And as you look throughout history, godly men stood on the scriptures as their foundation for fighting and bringing down slavery. Men like William Wilberforce, who used the scriptures as the platform in which to teach all men are created by God and are equal value and worth in the image of God, and this is wickedness that must be destroyed, and praise God, rightfully, it was. But when the New Testament speaks of slavery, it's a, it's a little bit different. Uh, slavery used in first century Roman Empire was the result of two things usually. Loss in war or sort of an indentured servanthood. What would happen was this. Someone would give themselves to an individual and say, all right, if you pay for X, Y, and Z, you pay off my debt, I will work for you for a certain amount of years. And then once that debt was paid, the person was released. It's his indentured servanthood. During the time of 1 Peter was written, it was uh, estimated that around 50% of the Roman Empire were slaves. Half the Roman Empire were this. This idea of in, indenturing yourself to someone in exchange for them to repay your debt. Any of you uh, go to college on the GI Bill? Right? The idea is you served with the U.S. government in the military or whatever other form for a certain amount of time and in exchange we'll pay for your school any of you graduate from college as a teacher 
and you were in a program, and you went to an underserved district, and they said, you give us five years here, we'll pay for your school. Any of you in the medical field, you, or the law field, and you joined a firm, and they said, all right, you stay with us for five to seven years, we'll pay off your student loans. You are literally experiencing what First Peter 2 is talking about here. I will give myself to you, I'll work myself, I will work for you for a certain amount of years in exchange you paying off my debt. And in that though, however, there were times that these masters were just wicked and horrible and mean. Just mean, cruel people that, that, that abused and neglected and beat down those who served them. And that's what this is talking about here. So, so let's do it two things. One, we'll talk about, we'll see how they're told for these servants specifically to handle their masters. But then let's, let's get 2020 for a moment. Have you ever in your life been wrongly treated? Have you ever in your life had someone treat you in a way that's unjust and unfair? Anybody ever lied about you? Mistreated you? Abused you, abandoned you? Anybody spread gossip about you? Sure, if you've been alive for longer than 10 minutes, that's happened for you, right? So the question that we want to answer is, okay, how do we address all undressed treatment? In whatever form or fashion it's happening, however it's coming down the pipe towards us, how are we to handle it when someone treats us unfairly? What do we do? Again, let's do the what, the why, and the how. First to what? Look at verse 18. What did you tell them to do? Servants, again, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. They are called to show respect regardless of the attitude and actions of those in charge of them. Regardless of how they act, regardless of what they do, regardless of how they treat you, you show them respect. Same way for us. How do we respond to those who treat us unfairly? The immediate response that we want to give is what? Defensiveness. We want to shoot back in anger. We want to prove our point. We want to win the day. We want everyone else to know how bad that person is. We want to gather a coalition around us and make sure they all see how bad that person really is. And in response, however, God's word tells us, show respect. Why? Again, everything God's telling us to do, I want you to see this, is going to go completely contrary to everything that naturally wells up in you which is why we started in verse 11 there is a war in your hearts there is a natural tendency that's going to well up and want to go flying out of you but as you trust the lord and walk in his ways he's going to lead you a different ramp he's going to take you a different path who are you submitted to, him or yourself? So why do we do this? Look at verses 19 and 20. 
Why would we respond in this way when someone is mean, unjust, cruel, unfair to us, whether it be in whatever form or fashion? Why in the world would God tell us to show respect to someone who shows none to us? Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Let's just pick apart verse 19 just for a second. This is a gracious thing. That, that, that word there, gracious thing, literally means a thing producing grace. This is a grace producer. This is something that's going to well up and produce more grace in your life. When what? Verse 19 finishes. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. What do we do when someone treats us unfairly? We respond with respect. We respond with grace because we understand this is a tool being used by God to, go, to grow grace in my life. You have different kinds of people in your life. You've got people in your life who are encouragers. right? Everybody's got an encourager. Aren't those the coolest people in the world? Don't you like hanging out with that guy? There's somebody in your life that's always going to talk about, you know, you do such a great job with that. I really, you did so good. I love the way you do that. So great. Good job. Right? We have encouragers. We love encouragers. We have partners. People who really stand beside us and we're able to walk side by side and help one another accomplish things in life. But then we also have grace growers. There are people in your life, and they're there sent by God to accomplish a very specific, important task, to grow you in grace, to help you deepen your roots and the grace of God in your own heart so that you can then pour out that grace to people who aren't worthy, which is the very definition of grace got these wonderful people in our lives used by God to give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to show them grace. How are we able to do this? Verse 19 says, because we're mindful of God. My mind is on God, not on you. My mind is what God, my mind is on what God has done for me, not what you have done to me. Therefore, I'm now able to show you grace, even though you don't deserve it. It's a tool God is using. Don't bemoan these people, don't uh, uh, run from these people. Let God accomplish his good work. He wants to grow you in grace. I've had many grace growers in my life. Still got them. Got people in my life who are wonderful gifts from God to help me grow in grace. I haven't always seen them that way. Marie can tell you there was a time in my life my favorite phrase to describe someone is, he's an idiot. God, what an idiot. Oh, I use that phrase frequently. 
for a while. And then God began to do a shift in my heart where I began to realize the only way I'm going to start growing in grace is if I start allowing God to use these opportunities to, to do that very thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's like exercising, right? You're, you're having to push against something, right? You, you, there's a weight on your chest and you're having to lift it off and you're doing it on purpose because it's going to build your muscles. In the same way, these grace growers in your life are used by God for you to push against in the grace of God, push against by faith in God so that grace grows in you. How do you think this stuff happens? You just wake up on a random Tuesday and boom, you're godly? I mean, you're changed at the moment from old to new. You're gone from sinner to saint. All that is true, but you grow up into this salvation by having to work this thing out. It always cracks me up when people say, never pray for patience. So you're just going to be short-tempered the rest of your life? Like, the thing that causes you to be impatient is still going to happen. Right? It's not like if you don't pray for patience, God's just like, well, he didn't pray for patience. Well, it's just rainbows and lollipops. All right. Who wants a unicorn? He didn't pray for patience, so he gave him good stuff. No, no, you're still going to experience the thing. Allow that thing to be used by God to grow you in the grace of God. How do we do this? Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. We do this by following the example of Jesus. Look at the way Jesus' life is described. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The whole idea is this. Jesus was sinless. Sinlessly perfect. And he still had people reviling him, contradicting him, accusing him, lying about him. And what did he do? He sat there and he trusted God. And he says that we are to follow the same pattern. We follow the example of Jesus. As followers of Christ, we walk in a time of ungodly government We all experience on some level at some point unjust treatment. And our response to those things is supposed to be diametrically opposed to everything the world is doing. And the reason for that is because we are new creatures in Christ. Let's let's finish where we started, verse 24. Again, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. So again, look at this, this substitutionary atonement. Who did the sinning? You did. But who hung on the cross? He did. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The whole point of the gospel is it's not fair. It absolutely befuddles me when Christians gripe and complain about things being unfair. You do know you're saved and it's unfair, right? You did the sinning, he did the dying. That's unfair. You get that, right? The whole point of the gospel is it's not fair. The whole point of the gospel is you received something you weren't worthy of. It's unfair. You deserve the cross. You deserve hell. You deserve the wrath of God. You deserve that. But God showed grace when you weren't worthy of it. That is why we now respond in this wicked world differently than everybody else. Because we know what it's like to be treated graciously when it wasn't fair. We know what it's like to be given blessing when we deserved the curse. We know what it's like to be given life eternal when we deserved death eternal. We know what that's like as Christians, so now we live differently than everybody else. This is the point. Christianity has consequences. It has consequences. It changes things. And because I have received the unfair grace of God, I am now filled up and able to share the unfair grace of God with this fallen and wicked world. And that, brothers and sisters, is how we're going to see the kingdom advanced. That is how. The kingdom of God is not advanced because this person is in the White House or that person is in the White House. It's because Jesus is on the throne. We do not pledge our allegiance to the party of the donkey or the party of the elephant, but the party of the lamb. We've been changed by the grace of God, so now we live differently in the grace of God. I want to ask you to bow your head. And we're going to end our time today. A little different than we normally do. We're not going to have you stand and sing or anything like that. Uh, I think today is best served by us just sitting before the Lord and, and, and letting what we've heard sink in a little bit, right? It's like marinating a steak. You got to let that thing sit in the marinade for a while. And it soaks up all that flavor. Same thing with us. You've got to just stop and let the gospel of Jesus Christ, His Word, get soaked up into our hearts. We just got to sit and marinate on that for a little bit. You ever just heard a word and you said, I got to think about that for a little bit. This might be one of those. So I want to pray for us. I want to ask God that by His grace, He would let the truth of His Word soak up into our hearts. 
and flavor us in our lives. Lord, I just thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you, Jesus, that what you did for me wasn't fair. I thank you that you did not wait for me to earn it or deserve it before you showed me salvation. I thank you that everything I have in my life today is given to me as a gift and I don't deserve it. God, I pray first for everyone here. The first thing that will soak up into our hearts is how much of our lives is just built on gifts of grace. God, let us Let us soak up your grace and be convinced of how you have radically changed us just as a gift, not given what's fair, but just graciously poured out your mercy on us. And then, God, I pray that you would show us how we turn around and show that, whether it be with ungodly governments honoring our rulers, our leaders, or with unjust treatment, showing respect, honor, love, grace to those who are not showing us the same. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, by your grace, change us so that we can be conduits of grace in this world. And if you're here this morning, and you've never given your life to Christ, I want you to know something. God is not waiting for you to get cleaned up so that you're worthy of his salvation. It's not going to be fair. It's not supposed to be. That's the great thing. I want today for you to see it's not fair and accept that and be excited about it today jesus christ he came just like first peter 2 24 says he came and he died on that cross for your sin so that you can be set free from it and you can live so that you can be healed from your sin today i want to encourage you right where you are right here right now this morning Say, Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you for dying for my sin. Heal me of my sin. Take away my sin. Cover me with your grace. Make me new. If your desire today is to be made new in Jesus, I want to encourage you as we close up here talk to someone. You can come find me, someone you came with, whatever, but I encourage you to share that so we can pray with you and encourage you and help you in your walk with the Lord. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, we walk out of here today on a mission, on a mission to live as grace-filled, grace-producing, grace-giving exiles on this earth. Jesus, do this in us today. Do this in us, Jesus. We need you to work this out. Work out your salvation in us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. I love you so much. Have a great week.